This is MJ. I love Star Wars and I want to welcome you to my fully operational analysis of E.K. Johnst e. Johnston's Star Wars Queen's Peril. So I've already done a spoiler-free analysis of Queen's Peril and review. The review is I liked it. Spoilers. Um, you can go ahead and uh, get it. I would say if you're a Star Wars fan at all, you should definitely check it out. If you're not a Star Wars fan, you might enjoy it, especially if you're uh, in the target audience, because this is a YA novel. Uh, the audiobook is between six and seven hours. I just don't remember how long it was. I listened to it two weeks ago. I listened to it twice. Uh, or maybe it was... Anyway, it doesn't matter. I listened to it twice within a short period of time, and it didn't take me very long because it's so short, and uh, it was pretty good. Um, again, as a Star Wars fan, I liked it more than I think I would have if I... Independent of Star Wars, and that's... I think that's okay. Um, you know, this is, uh, to, for, you know, some real talk real quick. This is a, uh, you know, contracted piece of writing done by an author for a corporation in order to, you know, continue filling out their line. Uh, I think especially now with modern Star Wars, uh, it's important to <laughs> make sure that there's something there for the girls. And uh, I do honestly think this book was made for the girls um, and the reason I enjoyed it so much is because I like characters and I like their stories and uh, I like to know the personal journeys that people go on and uh, I have to say if you're looking for a Star Wars story full of action and adventure uh, and exploration of the force or you know for sure exploration of the force you're not getting it here action and adventure you're probably uh, you know, in the wrong place, barking up the wrong tree. But if you want a Star Wars story uh, about some interesting characters and that tells a very personal narrative, this is the right place for you. Um, honestly, uh, after you know listening to the audiobook, I thought about other, well, the only other female-centric, not the only other, the one female-centric Star Wars book I had read uh, before the new canon, so this was years ago, back like, I don't know, 15, 10 years ago, no, not 10, like 15 years ago. I'm old, so it was back in the high school. Um, and that was uh, The Courtship of Princess Leia. And as I remember it, that book had a lot more action, or felt like it had a lot more action than this one. And uh, I'm not saying it needs to be nonstop action. Uh, it's just interesting because it does have a different pace, and there is that difference in it um, as far as not being action-packed and being more about the drama and the stakes and the relationships between characters. In fact, uh, I would say a large part of the of the book is setting up just the relationship between Sabe and Padme and how deep and intimate, without you know crossing into like almost to a familial point, uh, the relationship is between them, and uh, they're very much like sisters. Um, I don't know what's going on with Star Wars comics right now because, you know, Marvel's been, you know, the comic book industry's collapsing sort of, uh, then, you know, because of COVID, all these, you know, things weren't coming out. But I think, I think the last issue of a Vader comic, I think it's Charles Soule's Vader comic that takes place after, um, Revenge of the Sith, uh, th that, uh, is continuing and Vader meets somebody who looks just like Padme. I don't know what context he meets her in, but, uh. Tasabin, uh, I can't remember her last name, but Tasabin, uh, who takes on the name Sabe in uh, tribute or homage to Padme, uh, she looks just like her, and the book says that they could be twin sisters. And uh, in real life, 
Sabe was played by Kira Knightley and Natalie Portman played uh, Padme Amidala, Padme Neberi, Padme of Naboo, uh, Queen Amidala. Um, but there was this, you know, role in the movie, if, if you don't know, <laughs> where they're uh, decoys of one another. And that's explored greatly in the book. And uh, the fact that they, 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 look like, they look like sisters and they look so similar is, uh, you know, it's, it's apparent if you look at the two ladies next to each other. Uh, I think maybe a little bit less so. I feel like uh, Kieran Knightley's taller than... Uh, Natalie Portman, but I can definitely see the the similarities. And there's a remark from one actress, I don't remember which one it was, that on set the mother couldn't even pick her out. Like, even the mother was fooled by the decoy maneuver uh, when she was on set and they were filming scenes as, you know, one of them Amidala and one of them as the handmaiden to Sabin or Sabe next to her. But anyway, getting a little bit off track. Uh, because I already... You know, like I'm giving you the review here in the first, you know, five minutes or so of the book overall. Uh, I and I did a spoiler-free review. I kind of wanted to do something I haven't done before, and I did something with this book that I haven't done before for a book, at least not for a very long time. I actually, as I was going through listening, I took notes chapter by chapter, and some chapters have like nothing in them, maybe one line, and other chapters have many things. And I've put some stuff in bold for myself to talk about because. I thought it could be an interesting approach for me to take to do this kind of chapter by chapter thing and talk about the highlights of the book. So um, I guess to lay it all out there for you, the you know, synopsis of the book or the summary of the book would be Padme Neberi runs to be Queen of Naboo. Uh, queens have two-year terms. They typically run two two-year terms back to back. Not that they're not unopposed, but I think tradition mandates that they would be queen for like four years. So she would, she's expecting that if she were to become queen, she would be queen for four years. And it's because she has political ambitions, because her family's very political. Her mother and father raised her to be, uh, I wouldn't say an activist, more a... Um, the only way I can think to uh, fit, continue talking is to make up a word. So, you know, we have the term slacktivist. That means if you just... Uh, you know, put a little black square in your profile or whatever, or, you know, say that, you know, hashtag, uh, you know, whale lives matter or whatever, uh, and you're not doing anything about it, you're just a slacktivist. And uh, I don't know if that means an activist actually gets out there and puts in the work and, like, volunteers as a soup kitchen or, you know, does whatever, but the Neberis have been going and, like, distribute, like, on the ground, getting boots on the ground and distributing aid to people in need um, doing mercy missions, I think they actually use that phrase, mercy missions, uh, and things like that for years, and since, I think they say that she was doing it since she was like seven, so that's, that's interesting, um, but anyway, uh, the point is that she aspires to be queen because it's the greatest thing she can do to serve, it's the greatest, uh, height to which someone can ascend to on Naboo, a world full of, like, artisans and artists and craftsmen and philosophers and like all these like noble high I don't know noble high things or, or traits or whatever or trades is what I meant to say anyway um, she wants that she gets elected uh, she within her first year it seems like the Trade Federation invasion and blockade or blockade and then invasion of Naboo happens and then the Phantom Menace happens during the course of the book and it's interesting like the first I don't know, I'm going to say, like, the first half of the book is all leading up to her getting elected, which is just a very little bit, and then it's her being elected, and it's, like, her first time in office. I don't know what period it is, because the book is very vague on it. And then, 
you get to see things going on in the background, and then the invasion happens, uh, and then it escalates from there. Like I said, the events of the Phantom Menace happen, but you get to see them all from the perspective of the handmaidens, um, uh, the five handmaidens specifically, and Padme, and then uh, like they retake Theed, and then the book kind of ends there, and it's, it's a little bit interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and get into it, and basically... I will be sharing with you all the things that I thought were interesting or cool uh, from each chapter over the course of the whole book, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, here we go. Uh, so, uh, there's a prologue. Okay, also, there, this is interesting. There's a prologue, there's 25 chapters, and there's five interludes. In my opinion, chapter 25, the last half of it should have been an epilogue, or, yeah, an epilogue that comes after. Anyway, so there's like 31 chapters in total. So, anyway, here we go. So uh, the prologue book ends with the second half of the last chapter, which is about Leia. Uh, and I wonder, yeah, why not make it an epilogue? Uh, they refer to Padme as the girl in the white dress. Uh, we get to see her in a white dress at the end of Phantom Menace. We get to see her, I guess, in a white dress when she's getting married to Anakin on, you know, in Attack of the Clones on Naboo. And then uh, I think she's in a white dress when she is laid to rest as well, when she you know, has her funeral procession through Theed, uh, the streets of Theed. And then, of course, you know, Leia's in a white dress when we meet her, and uh, this is to echo that visually. And you don't know who it's talking about until they give more details about the girl. Um, and it's interesting, Padme straightens up and throws up her defenses as soon as Quarsh cracks the door. So she's sitting in this antechamber or whatever, waiting to hear election results. And she's, you're kind of with her in this space, and she's, you know, at rest or whatever. But as soon as she hears someone coming, she puts up this wall. She... It's like an act, it's like a performance, it's less, the interpretation that I took away from it is that it's less about her hiding who she really is or being dishonest, and it's more her, like, being in a ready stance or a stance of readiness, because she's going to ascend to this high position of this throne, um, so that's what I took away from it. Anyway, uh, in the prologue, uh, first, or I'm sorry, in the first interlude entitled Strength, we learn that Naboo's age, voting age is probably 14, uh, maybe 13, but she became queen at 14, so you would think she'd have to, you know, she'd be voting age at 14, and they mentioned something interesting with uh, Tasabin, so, uh, you know, she'll be able to vote, it sounds like, when she's 14 in the, in the coming election, so. Anyway, uh, again, because of the timeline, I don't know if Korshpanaka interviewed her like, while she was 13 and a half, and the election would happen, like, just shortly after her birthday, or, or what? It's a little confusing. But anyway, I'm just going to read from my notes, because me talking in between is kind of messing it up. So, uh, voter privacy is important in Naboo. Tasabin refuses to tell Panaka who she voted for or who she would vote for. Uh, Tasabin's formal education is done by 14. That's interesting, as it is fairly standard on Naboo. Uh, Tasabin is used to being second, because her brothers are superior musicians and tradition or familial inertia deemed she would follow them in musical training. She and Padme both react the same way as they are introduced or intruded upon by Quarsh, uh, as fo uh, far as putting up walls to maintain certain posture. Tasabin takes him in and deduces why he is there and what he intends for her to do after he leaves, which is to become Padme's decoy. She looks up on her data pad and she can see uh, candidate Amidala and she's like, hey, I could be this girl's sister. You know, we could be twins. Chapter one, Naboo has voter ID laws which I find very interesting, given, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, Panaka has to make sure that he leaves the house with the proper papers to go vote. I thought that was a bad thing. 
Anyway, uh, Jobel Neveri, who's her mother, who's Padme's mother, uh, doesn't want Rui, her husband Rui Neveri, uh, to kiss her. That's a weird beat. Uh, she rebuffs him, and he declares that it is a holiday. She then says that he can celebrate later. And I want to know what that means. I don't quite understand what Johnson was going for. Is it like, you know, if readers of the book are teenage girls and they're identifying with Padme, who's a teenage girl, like, you wouldn't want to see your dad kiss your mom? So you don't want the reader to have a scene of a, like, you know, attractive 45-year-old man and woman kissing? I don't know. just seemed kind of strange to me. Uh, Padme votes for herself and considers the fact that she just voted for Amidala, not Padme Neberi, to be queen. Naboo's civil structure is full of ceremony and ritual to act as a mask to the monarch so that she is motivated to rule for the sake of what she can do for her people, not the glory she can bring to herself. The royal mantle, so to speak, protects the people from her ambitions as well as her privacy from, you know, outside individuals, which I think is a really neat idea. Chapter 2. Naboo's queen has 16 guards who work for, who work in four rotations of four member teams, kind of like a fire squad. If you don't know what that is, look up fire squad. It's a military thing. Uh, I don't know a ton about it. It's just a term I've become familiar with over the years. Uh, next note, when meeting with her royal guards, she commits faces and names to memory. Despite her size, age, and vulnerability, Padme has a very powerful bearing, and you know, Johnston, as the narrator, remarks on that in the book. And then I want to know, is there a discrepancy between the origin of the group of handmaidens as presented here versus in Queen's Shadow? I haven't listened to Queen's Shadow again, so I couldn't tell you, but Padme offers the idea of a set of handmaidens, and it seems like a novel idea here. Uh, so, uh, well, let me see. If I recall correctly, in Queen's Shadow, it was presented as if Quarsh Panaka had res resurrected an abandoned tradition of Naboo's queens. Will this be clarified later in the book? I don't think it ever is. Um, there's something about it later, but, but I'll... I'll um, I will, uh, I'll take note of that later when I get to it. Um, I haven't looked over these notes in a few days. Anyway, uh, but in Queen Shadow, it sounded like Panaka wanted to bring forth the decoy or the handmaiden security. And then um, he also wanted to do the decoy thing where it's here. It seems like it's been consistent that uh, Queen would always have a handmaiden, one handmaiden decoy and or who could be her decoy who could switch with her as the queen but then uh in order to sell it or and then Sabin or Tasabe as she was known at the time met with Padme and they decided hey let's make it be a whole group of us and let's keep Panaka on the outside of our circle and or she and Padme decided that together but making it a whole group of girls of handmaidens and the way they fluctuate their numbers and stuff like that that was all from the girls so it's like is it an ancient tradition or not which part of it is the ancient tradition that's a little confusing to me anyway Continuing on notes from chapter two, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, what is the fact that Quarsh hadn't, quote, even once forgotten that she was the queen, end quote, supposed to mean? Is that supposed to say something about Quarsh or Padme? I'm not sure what Johnson meant, and it felt weird, uh, same as the rebuff of the kiss uh, from Jobel to Rui. So it was a little bit of a weird. I'm not like, you know, I think E.K. Johnson is a good writer. She's not my favorite Star Wars writer. I say Star Wars writer because I don't read too much out of Star Wars. Um... But, you know, I've read a lot of it, so I've read a lot of Star Wars. So that's got to give me some credit as a reader and reviewer of writing. But, like, Claudia Gray, I think, is a, a much better author. And that's nothing against... I think E.K. Johnson is much younger than Claudia Gray. So, you know, give her some time. She'll be even better. Uh, she'll be... Uh, she's younger and, you know, far more powerful, potentially. So we'll see what happens. 
continuing with chapter three, Padme uh, relaxes after she is left alone. Uh, She retires to her private chambers and has to read through a pile of documents from C.O. Bibble, the governor of Naboo. Uh, She calls her parents before getting to work. Her father is happy to hear her say that she won't lose herself. Um, I guess in political ambition or something. So in chapter three, we get some uh, cuts back to Coruscant. We get to see Senator Palpatine, Darth Sidious, uh, interesting stuff. So Darth Sidious talks with Newt Gunray, who is furious about the senator from Naboo, which would be uh, Palpatine, uh, blocking one of his motions or bills. He, (laughs) it's it's funny, remarks that Palpatine delights in the terror he strikes in Gunray and those who need access to the power he offers. Sidious reflects on his need for a useful pawn and someone who will not think on their own. Cutting back to Naboo, uh, Tasabin knows herself to be lacking in charm. She sees that in Amidala. When Amidala wins, she is uh, happily expectant that she can be her double. She feels joy in Amidala's victory. Uh, the character of Tasabin is kind of interesting and complicated to me here because um, she, unlike what we tell most people to do, or most you know heroes or heroines of stories are to do, she, like, gets joy out of serving someone else directly, like an individual, not a cause, um, not a belief, but Padme, Amidala. She she gets joy out of serving, serving her and, like, finds meaning through someone else in her life, which is interesting because I thought women weren't supposed to do that because it, like, nullifies who they are as people. And I just kind of find that an interesting message. But uh, Dasabin's an interesting character, and the way she develops uh, throughout the story is kind of, I don't know, it's different from what I would have expected. In Chapter 4, we get to meet uh, up with Qui-Gon Jinn and his Padawan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Qui-Gon, uh, n- near the end, there's a quote from him, which is, this is an incomplete quote, but I like it It says a lot. It says, politicians seek to control others. And uh, I just think that's good stuff. Anyway, in Chapter 4, Adme, uh, or sorry, Padme or Amidala, really, as the queen, uh, Padme is Queen Amidala, and Tasabin finally meet. Uh, the royal decoy tactic was last used generations ago when there was trouble between the Naboo and the Gungans. That's pretty interesting. Like, I almost want to hear about that story right now, especially because it's not covering stuff I already know about. Uh, Padme introduces herself with her personal name, Padme, as opposed to Amidala. Tasabin opens up and offers ideas to improve upon Padme's changes to Panaka's decoy plan. Part of learning her instrument, because she was a musician, was learning breathing techniques which allow her to stay stoic. She offers to teach this to Padme. She likes the idea and has Tasabin moved from the guards' barracks to her rooms. Uh, Mariek, who is uh, Quarsh Panaka's wife, uh, and another security officer, like pretty high on the same link or level or rank as him right now, uh, she and Palpatine dislike each other, and uh, Panaka likes both of them so much, uh, which I find to be pretty funny. Uh, and then uh, after we get that part of the chapter, then uh, Obi-Wan and uh, Qui-Gon come in, and it's really neat. Uh, Obi-Wan is bugged at the tax bills Qui-Gon is having him read over. Qui-Gon has Obi-Wan help him keep an eye on, I guess, the real world, the political, not just the Force, so that they can do more good in more places. Qui-Gon acknowledges that Jedi do seek to control, uh, or do seek control or power, but says that they seek it uh, to control themselves and to have power over themselves, whereas politicians seek to control other people. This feels like another point of view to Palpatine's admonition to Anakin that all who seek power seek to maintain that power, even the Jedi. So I thought that was pretty interesting. 
In chapter 5, Padme tells Panaka that she will get combat training along with Tasabin and that the other handmaidens will also get combat training. Uh, Tasabin and Padme create the face of Amidala as far as like posture, how she uh, comports her face and the kind of countenance that she sets and really doesn't deviate from as she's Queen Amidala. Padme and Tasabin are having so much fun learning to be cold and inscrutable. Isn't that a little weird? Like, why are they such nerds? I don't, I don't really get it. Why are they having fun learning how to be unnoticed? That's far, or that's more for Tasabin and Padme, but it seems like a weird thing to showcase. Like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, is there uh, a strength? And I'm not, <laughs> this is not me discounting anything. It's me wondering what the big deal is or, or what the, the characters and stories often uh, if they're like good heroic noble type characters, they do things that are cool or neat or interesting or stuff that people would find compelling. And learning not to show emotion doesn't feel compelling. Uh, and it also is interesting because um, the stoicism, stoicism is a typically male trait, uh, or I guess stereotypically male trait, and uh, she's, she being uh, Amidala, you know, as the figurehead of Naboo, is cultivating this stance of stoicism, which I find really interesting. Um, like, I think it's really neat that as a female character, she is a stoic, um, and that they're going on that angle, but just the fact that they're having fun, I guess, learning to be stoic and to do the breath control and, you know, posture control and body control and things like that, it just feels weird. Um, I don't really get it, but that's, you know, that's okay. Um, it didn't bother me too much, except for, you know, it made enough of an impact for me to want to make a comment on it. I almost skipped uh, the interlude cunning, uh, but here it is. Uh, so in, in this one, we introduce a new handmaiden, Rabine Tonsort. Uh, she was kicked out of school for creating forgeries and selling them to off-worlders. Panaka wants Rabine to be his locus of control within the handmaidens, as he senses Padme and Tasabin are trying to keep him out, and he feels he is not able to control that which he cannot see basically. Or he can't protect her if he doesn't know what's going on and if he's not all up in her business. So, uh, there you go. <clears throat> Continuing on to chapter six, uh, the handmaidens meet with Padme in private for the first time and they all showcase their strengths as well as speak openly about how they can help her to keep Panaka outside of their circle. Uh, Padme learns of Panaka trying to leverage Rabin. She wants to stop him, but Sasha or Sasha at this point, uh, says they should keep him in the dark about that too. Rabin agrees that it is smart and Padme goes along with it. Sasha deduced that Rabin was compromised. I don't know how, but she did. She's very clever. She continues to uh, deduce things throughout the rest of the book. Uh, and again, I don't remember if she did that in Queen's Shadow or not. Uh, this is where the handmaidens decide to take their names in tribute to Padme because she had given up her name to be Amidala. So she's known as Queen Amidala. She runs as, I think she runs as candidate Amidala as well. She's not Padme Amidala, but then like when she becomes a senator, she gets to take the name again. So she's Padme Amidala of Naboo, whatever. Uh, chapter seven, uh, the handmaidens run into interpersonal issues. By the way, the format is, uh, uh, Five chapters, interlude, five chapters, interlude, five chapters, interlude, like that. So, just kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, so they have interpersonal issues. Yane and Sashi refuse to room together. Uh, <clears throat> two weeks into their time together, Yane pushes for Amidala to make a decoy swap. So, she wants to do the full makeup and everything uh, and have her switch out with, uh, you know, her fellow handmaiden, um, which Sabe would be the one who does the switch first. Okay. 
So, uh, Erte and Yane modify headpieces and dresses to help with the changes. Uh, they decide to create a voice for Amidala uh, because the voice sounds different with everybody. And I think uh, um, Panaka kind of picked up on Sabe's voice because it's at a lower register than Padme's naturally. So, uh, so there's this list um, that Padme has. Uh, they, they make mention of adding the voice to the list or adding something to the list here. The list is mentioned, I think, in the first chapter maybe or maybe the prologue. Anyway, uh, I find it funny that Padme is said to have a list of things she wants to do. Uh, making a voice for Amidala gets added to the list, like I said. Uh, Erte seems to be the keeper of her royal... Uh, of the royal version of her list. So it, it strikes me as funny that Padme has a list, Jane Villanueva had a list, and I'm sure other heroines are um, are people who have lists. Uh, like, what is that? I've never heard of a male hero with a list. Uh, is this a girl thing? Is it, um, is it like for girls to feel included? Uh, I don't know. It's, um, it's very strange. Uh, like, you know, she's this queen, she, you know, I guess she, she would be kind of a princessy type character, but into a queen, but like, I don't know, this idea of women having these plans and these goals and these lists and these things like that drive them towards those, uh, seems to be kind of a trope, uh, but I'm not sure what it is or what it means, and I only just kind of picked up on it here, um, and I don't know, I don't know, it just seems kind of weird, but I mean... Padme is one of many characters, and they all get to be pretty different, so I guess it's not that bad, you know, pulling on what I think is like a cliche of a woman having a list of the things that she wants to do. I mean, it's a good idea, um, but it just seems to be, like, you never hear about a boy or a male hero. Like, Luke didn't have a list, like, oh, I want to do this and this and this, uh, and I don't think Leia has that, um, and I don't know, it just, the list feels, I don't know, it feels weird, feels kind of nerdy, um, although I do think it's a good idea, it just, it, it fell off to me, I don't know why. Anyway, chapter 8, uh, Sashe, at this point, she Sashe, refuses to be left alone with the older girl, Yane. Um, <sighs> I'm going to make my comment. I'm just reading my notes here. I'm saying, is it okay that this is a bit weird for me? Uh, should there be a problem with an age difference, uh, or with a difference in age and power dynamics between these two? This reminds me of Tarkin and the trooper in a certain point of view. You know, Tarkin's like a 70-year-old man, and there's like a 27-year-old trooper, and they have a homosexual love affair on the Death Star before it blows up. And um, I would think the fact that Tarkin's like his boss and he's so much older uh, would be a problem for people who have problems with people uh, like who are like boss and employee uh, in the real world, dating or, you know, having, uh, you know, romantic encounters or whatever. But it's I never heard anything about that when that book came out. And like... Um, you know, if you want to include, uh, uh, you know, young teen lesbians or, or bisexual girls in this story, I guess that's fine. Uh, you know, This Is Us did that with uh, one of the daughters of, uh, you know, one of the Pearsons uh, being bi or gay or whatever. And, uh, but she's not in a relationship with anybody. She thinks some, you know, older celebrity is attractive or whatever, but so did I at, you know, 13 or 14. Um, and uh, it's just interesting, like... Nothing ever happens, you know, spoilers, nothing ever happens between Yane and Sashay in this book, and I don't know if anything happens uh, by the time Queen's Shadow has happened, and I don't think they're in a relationship at that time, but she's like, I think she's a year or two younger than the rest of the Handmaidens, and, like, if it was a 14-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, um, I don't feel like the book would be silent about 
the indifference or the difference and the imbalance between them and how he's wrong or creepy to be interested in her. And Yane never seems to have any romantic interest in Sashe or it's like never spelled out. Uh, like they don't know each other. They didn't go to the same school as far as I know. Like Erte and Sashe. Was it Erte? I believe it's Erte and Sashe. It's in my notes later. Went to the same school. But like do they have gaydar? Like, are, are, do they know that they're both lesbians somehow? Like, do they, like it, it just seems very weird. And it's very vague, and it's very unexplained. Um, but, like, I don't know. Was it a good choice for uh, Johnston to have put that in there? And is, is that going to have backlash? I doubt it. Um, I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. Uh, but I just wonder in what circumstances there would be a problem with it. You know, if it was a a 14 year old guy and a 12 year old girl, would people be freaked out by that? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I'll continue from here. Um, apparently Star Wars fans don't like it when an older person is interested in a younger person or talks to them and there's anything potentially romantic between them. Anyway, uh, Air 2 Tinkers with Small Electronics, uh, Robbie Whistles While Thinking. There's these little quirks that the girls have that show up uh, throughout this chapter. Um, the girls have a fight because Sasha and Yanni have to bunk together because they have a cold. Um, and Erte and Robbie put together a uh, like algorithm to make them bunk separately from each other. And then it didn't work because you know they were both sick and the, the medical droid or whatever on staff decided that they should room together because they're both sick, I guess. Anyway, um... The handmaidens had loosely agreed uh, that all of them would stay for at least one term, and like, it's it creates an awkward situation. Um, and I hadn't thought about them changing terms. I thought, well, your handmaiden, your handmaiden the whole time she's queen. But if she has two terms, technically, I guess you could leave in between one or the other. Uh, let's see. Oh, and this is a weird note too. Robbie comes from the western provinces, and for some reason, uh, she chose to adjust her accent to hide that. So like, she's from the western provinces of Naboo or Theed, or wherever, and she has an accent because she comes from there, and then when she goes to her school, and when she's in, you know, the regular Theed royal, you know, places, or in Theed, uh, she tries to flatten that accent out, and that's weird, but that apparently contributes to part of why Amidala's voice is the way it is, because the voice was constructed with Sabe, Pad, um, Padme, uh, Rabe, and the others, basically, um, combined, but, you know, Padme's the main one who has to speak it, uh, Sabe's, you know, her most likely decoy, and then Rabe could decoy too, so it's like, let's all speak the same, or let's have the Amidala voice take characteristics from these three principles who are kind of going to be, like, weighing the heaviest in what the voice is going to sound like, if that makes sense. Anyway, moving on to chapter nine, Maul appears. So, appears. He appears and he appears. Uh, Maul resents that the Jedi did not take him as a baby. Uh, fun fact, every part of his lightsaber was stolen. Uh, he took the components from others through blood and assembled it. Johnson notes that Maul would say he feared nothing if he were asked, but that it, but that, that notion is wrong. I find that interesting. Valorum appears. Shmi and Anakin appear. Uh, Anakin breaks his femurs shortly before the events of The Phantom Menace. The crash that wrecked Watto's pod racer that we hear about in the movie uh, is the one that did it. Uh, Medroids worked on him to fix them as Shmi watched over him. And he said someone to Shmi, like, oh, they're just going to put me out while the med packs knit my femurs. And that was a nasty line, man. Um, and Anakin says something sweet to her. There's a lot of good lines in this in this book. He says, don't worry, Mom, I'm always going to be with you. And then she says to him, maybe it's when he's asleep already, but she says, someday it won't be always. And I just think it's a really beautiful line. Um, actually, I was so impacted by the beauty of that line that when I got home, uh, or when I was home later, um, after hearing this, I went ahead and I pulled up the, uh, tone poems from Phantom Menace to go- uh, look them up on YouTube. Uh, Phantom Menace, 
tone poems. There's a great one from Shmi and from Anakin. They're all pretty good, or they're all good, but like the Anakin and the Shmi ones are like really great. Um, they're called like One Love, um, One, uh, or like Dreams. Anyway, look it up. They're really great. Uh, let's see, chapter 10, chapter, oh, and then Yoda and Mace appear in the end of chapter 9, and it's just kind of a vague thing, and there's a little bit of humor in there, but, you know, not too much to write about, or talk about, rather. Alright, so picking back up, continuing with chapter 10, about 60 to 70% through chapter 10, Padme and, uh, oh, kind of remarks about Panaka wanting to hide a gun in the the throne, I presume, uh, that this is the gun that she pulls out in the Phantom Menace, and it's interesting, well, anyway, uh, hopefully I don't mention it later in my notes, but, uh, she actually has input two in there, um, which is interesting, and, uh, she mentioned something about her stance on taking up arms, is how Johnston puts it, and I don't know what that means! I would assume that E.K. Johnston is probably, uh, politically left and probably favors gun control and things like that and it's very interesting that there's a very large contingent of Star Wars fans who uh, seem to be uh, very left-wing and who um, like I, I agree that Star Wars is anti-war and actually I was preparing to talk about that but uh, you know and the book came out and distracted me and whatever um, I think it's very clear that Star Wars is anti-war but it's not anti-taking up action and Clone Wars has uh, Sabine um, Sabine Run. Yes, Sabine Wren. No, Sabine Tears. Um, no. Tears or Cries? Crees? I think her name is like Sabine Cries or Crees, and it's supposed to make you think of tears and sadness and stuff because she's a sadly. Even the character model looks sad on Sabine. Anyway, Sabine Wren is from Star Wars Rebels. She's a Mandalorian. But uh, Sabine, or Satine, Duchess Satine Cries or Crees or whatever her name is, is the Duchess of Mandalore. She's a pacifist, Mandalorian which is an interesting concept to explore, and, um, you know, it's an interesting thing in Clone Wars, uh, she, it's, the idea of pacifism is expressed or explored through her and through other characters throughout Clone Wars a few times, and, uh, it's interesting, I think, ultimately, uh, you know, you've got Princess Leia, she's got a gun, um, did I, I, I think I mentioned this recently, talking about Star Wars, uh, she has a gun on her. Uh, she's part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor to the Empire, which is good. You should betray the Empire because they're bad. Anyway, um, so she uh, takes up arms, but, you know, so does Padme. And, and, like, they have weapons training and stuff. So there must be some way. And, and uh, to step away from the American, you know, 2020 political aspect, there must be some way that people can be peaceful and still have arms. And I think that's what planets like Naboo have. That's what planets like Alderaan have. I don't know if Alderaan has any planetary defense systems. Uh, according to Leia, they don't. But what does that really mean? Because they have blasters and stuff. And I think Naboo is said also in this book to not have any planetary defenses. And yet, they have the Royal Navy, which has ships. They're not... I don't know if you'd call them starships or not, but the N1 starfighters... Well, they're called starfighters. So, yeah, they can go into space. And, and I, I would wager that they have... No, they probably just have sublight engines. Regardless, they can go and fly up into space and fight and destroy and stuff like that. But is that a planetary defense or is that just like a small contingent that the Queen has in Theed only and like there's not, you know, globally all over Naboo, um, you know, weapons like that? And why aren't those considered planetary defenses? Is it because they can only do a tiny bit of stuff or is a planetary defense something even greater like on scale of like a, not like a Death Star, but like a mini Death Star, like a huge cannon or multiple huge cannons or like a satellite array, kind of like we saw on the moons of Viego. I'm, hold on. <laughs> That's too noisy. 
um, you know, that, like, uh, uh, Anakin mentions the moons of Viego in Phantom Menace, and then we get to see them in Clone Wars. There's this satellite array that, like, uh, it basically is like a giant bug zapper around the whole planet, and it can stop ships from coming in. So maybe that's like a planetary defense. But to me, that seems more defensive than offensive, so, uh, I don't know. Maybe the problem is that Leia said that line, we have no planetary defenses, back in 1977, before the rest of Star Wars had been made, and Lucas just, you know, didn't do a decent enough job of backfilling and, you know, making sure the lore was all correct and I'm being pedantic and too much of a fanboy. I don't know. Anyway, the book does not clearly state what Padme's uh, view on uh, weapons is, and I find that funny, but then she uses them uh, quite liberally and gets comfortable with that, so... Just interesting. Interesting. Anyway, next interlude, because that was chapter 10, that's all, all I had on it, is uh, called Distraction. Uh, Ertama, who is blonde, so different from the other handmaidens, she's a set designer at this, you know, fancy-schmancy, you know, Juilliard-type school. Uh, she built a hover pod, or a hover pod for an opera that was screwed up by the folks in the production ignoring her. She had specced it for, you know, X amount of people, and they wanted to add an extra one, and uh, nobody listened to her, so things went poorly. Um, actually, they went X, they went plus one, and then they went plus one more as a surprise, and she didn't know, and everything fell to pieces. Um, but it was interesting. Panaka was there to help her and to, you know, smooth everything over. Anyway, she over she overreacts to things, and it makes her cautious and wary and clever to avoid leaving loose ends. So she's like a very cautious person, and she's very sensitive to things being able to go wrong, and tries to hedge and account for those things. Um, so a measure of calculation on her part. So she's not only, you know, technically... Uh, smart and, you know, savvy and able to do the things, but she also has a great measure of wisdom, I would call it. It's not paranoia, or at least it never comes across as paranoia. She is wise, so pretty cool. Uh, going on to chapter 11, um, uh, Amidala and Bibble invited uh, representatives from the rest of the Chamal sector, of which Naboo is the lead or chief planet, to a royal summit to discuss the food shortage in Naboo, or on Naboo, and open up to them after the isolation of the former Queen of Naboo, whose name I neglected to write down, but she was an isolationist and she only cared about doing things on Naboo and then she let Senator Palpatine uh, handle all the off-world matters and apparently the Chamal Sector, it's got like, uh, I think it was like 20 planets or something like that, 20 to 30 planets, um, or different star systems in that area and um, Naboo's just one of them Naboo apparently is the only one that has a a crown or a, um, a monarch, a royalty, and the others are just like their governors or their, you know, sector managers, or they have different names and different appellations, or is it approbations? Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> At the moment, I'm not going to figure it out, but uh, she decides to treat them all as equals and, and invites them to the planet, which is pretty interesting, and like they, Naboo has a food shortage, they're going to be in trouble if they don't get that sorted, uh, and instead of buying from big off-world uh, like people across the galaxy or, you know, closer to the core, because I think Naboo's closer to the outer rim, I think. Um, maybe I'm thinking about Geonosis and uh, Tatooine being close to each other. But they're on Naboo. Anyway, I'm thinking about Attack of the Clones and the geography of the galaxy from there, but it, it doesn't really matter at this point. That's just a distraction. Anyway, um, yeah, so instead they want to turn inward and, like, work with the people in their own sector and try to lift them all up as opposed to just going to, you know, Walmart for more more crops or whatever. Chapter 12, uh, the big meeting and the issues with the outdated treaties and uh, Kreeling Ore. Okay, so, yeah, um, there's this planet in the Chalmers sector called Kreeling. Uh, they mostly mine a particular type of ore from their planet or whatever, and it's used in Naboo 
for different things. Uh, but there's an outdated treaty that makes it so that they uh, have to give the best stuff to Naboo. And, like, Naboo and the other planets, in I think, in the Chamo sector get first shot. Like, Naboo gets first, and then everybody else is next after them. And then whatever, whoever else they could sell the ore to, by the time they get to them outside of the Chamo sector, um, like, it's lower quality stuff, so they can get a lot less money for it. And they have to sell... The, they not only do they have to give first dibs to Naboo and the rest of the Shamal Sector planets, but they also give them uh, access to those materials at a great discount. Um, so they're like hardly making any money on it, and uh, they want to know if they can not break the contract because they don't do things like that. They want to do it the right way. They want to renegotiate them and figure out a, a way to, to make things better. Um, so the ore is used not only in shipbuilding on Naboo, but it's also used in the manufacture of certain instruments. Uh, I don't know how to say the name of the instrument or spell it at all. It's like a helixet, I think is what it's called. Uh, and Sabe plays that, or, you know, Tasabin learned that. And uh, anyway, because of that, knowing that, Amidala calls on Sabe to share information about the ore used in the making of musical instruments. Uh, the point is that she is able to leverage information from one of her handmaidens in a pinch because of the trust and openness that exists between them and her, which is pretty cool. Uh, Sidious pops up in the end of this chapter. Uh, just, that's fun. It's fun how much he pops up. Uh, chapter 13. Padme and the Handmaidens sneak out to see Neurotransmitter Affection, which is like a, I guess a boy band. E.K. Johnson said on StarWars.com that she wanted to like send them to a Backstreet Boys concert, and this was how she did it. So I guess uh, she was Team Backstreet Boys. Well, I guess I guess I like both NSYNC and Backstreet Boys back in the day. It was the 90s, guys. Forgive me. Anyway, so they sneak out to go see them in concert. Pretty interesting. Uh, Padme gets the uh, wind knocked out of her from failing to land properly, from descending down uh, five stories down the palace wall. Um, they do that with grappling guns. Um, I get, I don't remember if it was Robbie or another girl had discovered that Panaka stashed grappling guns or, or grappling cables or grappling attachments for guns or whatever uh, in their room. And, you know, it's cool we get to see those as the Ascension guns used in Phantom Menace, which is pretty neat. Anyway, uh, Robbie did it well, and Padme asks her to show her the right way to do it afterward because Robbie's experience with rappelling up and down things and sneaking and stuff like that because she turns out to not just be an art forger and seller, but also a thief because she had to break in and steal whatever items she uh, forged, which is pretty fun. Chapter 14, we get dinner with the Panakas. Nothing really much comes of that. Um... He, uh, they're starting to have dinner, and then an alarm goes off, and he runs over, um, and, uh, it turns out that one of the girls, I think it's Sasha, is getting her period, um, and, uh, this is the first time she's menstruated, so, uh, a, it sets off a blood alarm or blood detector in Padme's room, you know, because the queen has a blood detector just in case somebody tries to kill her, and draws blood in doing so that the palace will be, um, you know, alerted, so they can go help. Anyway, uh, I find this interesting after listening to uh, another YA Star Wars novel, which was uh, Lost Stars. Uh, I found that the Empire gives out hair growth suppressants, like for men's beards, so that they don't have to shave all the time, and they can have that nice, crisp, clean look. And at least on Naboo, most women, aka those who cycle, as it's called in the book by uh, Mariek Panaka, um, you know... Quarsh Panak's wife, uh, they utilize menstrual suppressants of some sort. It is unclear how they function, but they seem to stop the bleeding associated with menses. I found that pretty interesting. Uh, chapter 15, Republic credits are, and I guess uh, if you're, if you don't menstruate, that means you can't, 
become pregnant either, so it's probably a birth control type thing too. I don't know. Anyway, uh, chapter 15, Republic credits are a fiat currency. I didn't realize that. I probably should have, and it, I find that interesting. Fiat currency is bad. And the Fed. Audit the Fed. Uh, anyway, uh, Harley, uh, whose name I don't remember, is an alien species from an aquatic type world. Like, well, no, they have blue, bald blue skin humanoid, I think is how she's described. Anyway, Harley comes on to Padme as Sabe and wants to kiss her. Harley, by the way, is the one who invited them to the concert and had them sneak out. And she and Sabe were vibing and having a good time. Anyway, Padme pulls away and uh, Harley becomes upset. Uh, and Padme doesn't know what to do because I, she sensed the, like homosexual attraction or whatever between them and uh, like didn't really want to press the matter and find out what was up so when Harley came on to her because she thought she was Sabe she freaked out and that ended poorly anyway so that's kind of it that's an interesting but understandable uh, situation it's just uh, again the uh, like Johnson I almost feel like she's being too like she's soft pedaling if you're going to have you know lesbian 14 year old girls like just do it. Commit to it and do it. And I feel like she's kind of soft pedaling things and making things weird. And like Padme didn't want to have to ask uh, Sabe about like, you know, are you into this girl? Because it, it describes them as flirting. And Pad, that's from Padme's perspective. She sees that they're flirting. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm like, a, you know, straight, married, uh, you know, cis. I'm not white. So <laughs> you can't be mad at me for that. Um, but like, I'm, you know, very vanilla and you know, I would assume the default, uh, and, uh, like, I would never really say that I'm flirting with a guy, or that my wife was flirting with a girl, or whatever, um, like, you know, joking around, having a good time, having, is that the same, is that what they mean? I don't know, and again, I'm saying this because, like, I feel that in Johnston's Ahsoka novel, she also, like, tried to code her as maybe being bi, or gay, or something, and, like, there was a, a little sister character who, um, like, kind of looked up to her, and it seemed like she was interested in Soka, but, like, again, Johnson never made it explicit, and, like, I don't know if it's one of those things. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll talk more about that later. I just find it interesting, and I, I almost wish that she would be more explicit with how she handles these types of characters, because it feels like, uh, what do they call that? Queer baiting? And isn't that a bad thing? Like, if someone's gay, just make them gay, and don't worry if you're going to offend people, right? Anyway. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, next interlude is called Bravery. Oh, the only note I have is that Suyan is recruited by Panaka. She's working at, I, I remember this, she's working in a, uh, like an open-air stall type thing doing, I, I can't remember if she's, like, actually got a loom going or what, but she's making fabrics, or she's using fabrics, uh, yarns and things like that to knit, uh, blankets for hospitals or whatever, and then he asks her about, um, like, military, or, like, security applications that could be made from the yarn or... Uh, like different materials besides the yarns and she talks about resins that can be placed on them and whatever and we um, we heard about that stuff earlier in the book because she talked about fortifying the queen's wardrobe and redoing it and uh, Yane becomes or Suyan becomes Yane anyway um, and uh, anyway she she just like all the other girls basically figures out that, that Panaka is a royal guard and that they're being recruited to work for the queen and it's kind of a shtick going through the book uh, kind of funny and uh, I don't know I like it it works, especially for a YA novel. If it was an adult novel, maybe it'd get irritating. But YA feels like, you know, it's from the perspective of these young people. And I know people say, why just means it's about a young adult? Well, okay, yeah, but also, like, may, uh, you know, who's the intended audience then, you know? I, are most young adults uh, reading books about, you know, 47-year-old uh, tax accountants? No, they're not. They're reading about people they, um, you know, connect to and, you know, maybe identify with in some ways. Anyway, continuing on. 
uh, in chapter six, from chapter 16 on, like the book is basically, uh, going along with Phantom Menace in parallel. And it's really interesting to me. Uh, so let me see. The security sensors detect some small craft testing or some small craft testing for planetary, uh, something. What? Anyway, the small sensors detect something up in atmosphere around Naboo. So, um, they check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. I said that in the worst way I possibly could. Anyway, Panaka calls together Amdala and some others to discuss this. Uh, during that meeting, Newt Gunray calls them and demands that Naboo sign a treaty with the Trade Federation. So the Trade, trade Federation blockade is set in place. CEO Bibble calls the Trade Federation treaty a pile of shack... Sh- I can't say it. Um, <laughs> shack, shack refuse or shock. Shack? They say shack. That's how um, uh, the lady who played Padme in Clone Wars, who narrates the book, that's how she reads it. Shack, shite, let's say. And the shack, which is spelled the name is Shock of Shakti, is one of those big um, goofy animals on Naboo that Anakin rode and pretended to be hurt by uh, when frolicking with Padme in Star Wars Episode 2. Anyway, uh, fun, uh, oh yeah, I, so these are large herbivorous uh, herd animals, um, and they're called shocks. Anyway, just I thought it was, I thought it was funny. Uh, chapter 17, although I was a little put off by the expletive being thrown in there because I don't think they've been in any other Star Wars books, but what do you do? Anyway, chapter 17, one week into the Trade Federation blockade, Governor Kelma of Carolina sends food to Naboo, but it is turned away by the Trade Federation. Amidala learns that Naboo only has enough food for one more week. About halfway through this chapter, as the Trade Federation is violently blockading Naboo, Panaka is asking Amidala if she's willing to go into hiding, and... She said no. This reminds me of the hubbub around Trump hiding in the White House bunker, uh, I guess June 1st, 2020. Hmm, interesting. Uh, when there were protesters or rioters pressing at the gates of the White House. Just, I mean, this is in real time. These are my notes that I made while going over this book. Anyway, uh, how much time, I want to know how much time the handmaidens had in her service before the invasion of Naboo because it's very vague and very nebulous. And I want a little more definition, but. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so Jar Jar pops up. Uh, this is cool, but this feels a little out of place. Um, the Gungans see the Naboo is uncivilized. We get that from Jar Jar's perspective. Uh, Theed makes him question that because of how nice it is. And, you know, the beautiful buildings, whatever. So chapter 18, uh, there's the quote here from Sabe, or no, Padme. As Sabe is in face of the queen, um, she says something like, it'll be dangerous for all of us or whatever. And then Padme pipes up with, we are brave, your highness, which is cool. Because that was from Phantom Menace. And it's just a good line in context. Especially knowing the context of how the handmaidens and the queen work together in this book. Like, you really get, like, how... It's a it's a resonant moment, really. Anyway, moving on to chapter 19. Yane weaves a code into fabric and Sashay volunteers to distribute it throughout the, uh, throughout the camp to help people escape. Uh, we on, on Tatooine, we learn that Shmi is a techie person, too. Uh, Padme walks in on her fixing a viewing screen to watch the pod race. So you know that screen she's holding with, like, those tusks or horns or whatever on it? Uh, in Phantom Menace, that she's working on that in this book, which is pretty cool. <clears throat> Chapter 20. Padme asks Sabe to be Amidala and talk to the Gungans, and talk the Gungans into making an alliance with them against the Trade Federation droid army. Um, and it's funny, Sabe says something about, she says this line, there must be countless skinny brown-haired girls in the galaxy. Uh, and uh, to me, like, I almost wonder if that was a little bit of a dig at the fact that I think almost, well, every lead Star Wars female, or every lead female role in Star Wars since the Disney uh, era has begun has been a skinny, brown-haired girl, and uh, I just think that's very funny. 
I especially think I was when the T when TFA came out, I thought Ray was definitely going to be a, she looks like Pernilla August or yeah, the lady who played Shmi. She looks like her. She looks like Padme or, you know, Natalie Portman. She looks like uh, Carrie Fisher. Like they could all be related. And I was convinced that she was going to end up being a, you know, Skywalker by blood. I had no idea she'd be a Palpatine. Spoilers for Rise of Skywalker. Um, and, uh, yeah, supposedly the intention all along was that, no, she was never supposed to be Skywalker, which I believe is bunk. And I think if she wasn't going to be a Skywalker, they would have cast, uh, you know, a black woman, an Asian woman, a Latina, anybody. Uh, but then again, uh, every other lead female role in the, mm-hmm. you know, in this uh, Disney era of Star Wars has been a skinny brown haired girl. So I don't know what to say to that. And like even uh, the Game of Thrones lady, uh, Kira in uh, in Solo, isn't she actually blonde? And then they gave her a brown wig or dyed her hair brown? Anyway, I don't know. I don't know who she is other than she was in you know Game of Thrones in that Star Wars movie. So um, anyway, a little bit of a tangent. And uh, it felt like maybe <laughs> like a passive aggressive uh, you know, attack or, uh, you know, swipe at, uh, broader Star Wars and Lucasfilm and Disney, who Johnson is working for in this book. Which, if it is, I salute you, madam. You always got to fight the power in any way you can. Anyway, uh, Padme is uh, shown to be much more idealistic than Sabe in this chapter. I don't have the context for that. I just made that note. Ooh. Anyway, uh, I find it interesting that Maul laid the groundwork for his fight with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. He, like, walked all throughout the palace, figured out where, because he would have, you know, two opponents attacking him at once, where would be the best place to be, and then that, like, plasma fusion room or whatever it is with the switching doors that open and close and whatever in the whole room with the gap in the floor, he determines that's going to be the best place because he can maybe separate them in between the plasma shields, and he remarks that the pla- he hops over the plasma, or the hole in the ground, and he thinks about where it terminates, and he's like, man, whatever, I won't need to know that my victory is all but assured, uh, which is pretty fun knowing what happens in him. Uh, next um, interlude is called uh, Determination. So here are my notes from it. Panaka meets Sashe and Ertama. Or Ertan. Um, sorry, Sasha and Ertan, who become Sashe and Erte. Anyway, Ertama and Sashe or Sasha were at the same actor's workshop or school or whatever it was. Uh, Sasha warned Panaka that Ertama's set work was going to be messed up by the players in the production. She maneuvered him into recruiting her, and he realizes that uh, based on the situation, like, based on the geography of of where they were talking and stuff, which is pretty cool. Uh, moving on to chapter 21, Sasha is taken for, uh, taken in by the droids um, to this lady, uh, what's Newt Gunnery species? Whatever. One of them, um, because they know that she's distributing these coded messages, she's tortured by the Trade Federation, and it's uh, it's pretty grisly. It's actually it's my it's like a t- it's almost stomach turning. Uh, when I went to the re-listen, I like kind of wanted to skip, but I forced myself to listen well to you know make any more notes, and it was just she just gets tortured, and it was awful, and it just it wouldn't stop. And my hats off to Johnson for uh, making it so effective, I mean, especially because you don't get to see it. Anyway. You just hear about it, read about it, whatever. So chapter 22, Sashi was tortured for three hours and then released. Uh, she volunteers to go out walking through the camp to make a diversion so that they can get the coded messages to as many people as possible for a coordinated, to lead uh, like military men and women out so that they can uh, form an attack against the Trade Federation because they've, um, uh, Panaka's sneaking in and he, uh, you know, wants to form this plan of attack against the Trade Federation. Uh, chapter 23, Padme reveals herself to Boss Nass and the others. 
we have the quote pop up here, my hands are yours, and they always have been, uh, which is really great. Sabe says that to Padme right before they, uh, before the retaking of Thede. Uh, Typho pops up, which is pretty cool. Uh, he's the act he's actually the nephew of uh, the Panakas. I don't know which one he's blood related to, um, but he's, I think he's Mariek's nephew, but regardless, um, he's their family. And when, um, Quarsh, you know, decides to not continue being Padme's, um, you know, assistant or not assistant, but security guy, um, guard captain, uh, I guess Typo takes up that place when she becomes, you know, Senator. He, he, he takes care of her security detail and which we see, you know, 10 years later in Attack of the Clones, which is cool. Um, I'll have more on the, uh, my hands are yours later. So, chapter 24, the taking of Thede and the defeat of the droid army. The throne room blasters come into play. Uh, Anakin Skywalker liked flying, and Anakin Skywalker really liked flying. Uh, these were lines that happened, so, like, Johnson is kind of encapsulating the movie, and it's, like, moving through really quickly, and, uh, like... Uh, I I don't like these like silly or cutesy lines or cutaways uh, to the stuff outside of the main battle for uh, from Padme and the Handmaiden's perspective. Like I wish she would have just stuck with Padme and the Handmaiden's perspective, retaking Thede, Thede Castle. I don't know what you call it, uh, the Thede Palace. Um, and like the way she cut away to Anakin, it was just goofy, and uh, I didn't like it. But and and like it took away from the ladies and what their accomplishments were and what they were doing, which I wish we would have seen. And she mentioned something about like a different type of power, like this womanly power order. But like, I also want to see women, you know, marshalling or, uh, you know, um, bearing martial strength as well. Like they learn to fight and everything and all the other things that they do are cool and they're forms of soft power. But you know, they also were in a firefight. Like they were, you know, shooting at people and stuff. And I wish I would have, you know, we would have gotten to see a little bit more of that. Okay. Chapter 25. Uh, we have a wind-down of the funeral and all that stuff, so it's just basically the denouement from Phantom Menace. Uh, about halfway through the chapter, uh, it jumps, through chapter 25, it jumps to Leia after the Battle of Yavin. Uh, or do I say Yavin? I don't know. Anyway, it's a sweet way to bookend things. It does feel a little gimmicky and unnecessary, though. It kind of reminds me of how Queen Shadow is bookended by, you know, the Queen of Naboo lays, you know, flowers all around her, her hair, this, her, that, whatever. She floats on by, you know it's silent or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, I won't spoil what it was in the beginning, but in the end it's about her death and her being, you know, her funeral procession and stuff. And it's just, Hmm. You you did it in one book. You don't have to do it in the, in the next book. It's about the same character. Like we get the parallels. We like, you don't have to mimic all the structure, but I don't know. I couldn't say that I wouldn't resist or I would be able to resist doing something similar if I was doing books that were linked like this. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, Getting back to the point, like, why hand off from Padme to Leia here and now in this story? Why link this this book, this story, both to Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and A New Hope? I get that the parallels between The Phantom Menace and A New Hope are there, but this takes place at different points in their lives. Maybe that is the point, though? Padme ascended to the monarchy at 14, Leia at 19, had no monarchy to ascend to, but she was ready to meet the challenge like Padme did. Like the book said, she was ready to lead a people, and leading the rebellion can be like leading a planet. So, I don't know. It's just kind of funny because it, like, all of a sudden switches and veers to being about Leia versus Padme, which, I don't know, I just found it kind of odd. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a lot. I did not expect for this to uh, take quite as long as it did, but I actually really enjoyed uh, not reviewing the book, but doing this deep dive into uh, Queen's Peril. And I think I'll do this with future books. Maybe I'll do, like, a spoiler-free review and then a spoilery review like, you know, 
put a space between them in, in you know, a, wherever I present it, whether it's video or audio or whatever. And then I'll do a deep dive where I really get to have fun and like just, you know, wade in the story and talk about all the things I really liked uh, from it. Um, just because it's so darn enjoyable. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you want to weigh in on any of the stuff I brought up, like the, the gun control type thing, um, the like, you know, sexualized nature of like these young teenage girls, um, the, and I, again, regardless of whether it was with a boy or a girl, like, is that okay? Is it okay because they're gay? Is it not okay because they're gay? If it was a boy and a girl, would it be like those things that I raised? Like, what do you really think about that? And like, I'm curious to have a conversation. I'm, I'm not here to attack. I'm here to, you know, present things and present my opinions. And, uh, I love having conversations with people and learning and, uh, you know, engaging in dialogue. That's, I'm very open to that. So, uh, if you, you know, if that's something you're interested in, uh, you know, let me know, comment and we can talk about it. You, there's multiple ways to comment with me, you know how to do them and I'll tell you about them, uh, briefly. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's all. Uh, like I said, I really enjoyed this. I'll probably do this for other books. Maybe I'll revisit some of my favorite books like Jade, um, uh, John Jackson Miller's, uh, Kenobi or A New Dawn. Oh, such a good book. Um, I, I could have a lot of fun doing this kind of thing again and again and again. So anyway, uh, that's it for now. I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. So I almost forgot to share the fact that, uh, I was so inspired by this. My hands are yours line that I went ahead and I created uh, something, a design for it on, uh, it's up on Redbubble. You can get, you know, a lot of different things with it. Shirt, uh, sticker, you know, coffee mug, whatever you want. But if you like that, uh, and you like the handmaidens and you like that, you know, decree of fealty, uh, I have that on there. And I even have like the Amidala makeup, like the, the lipstick with the dots on the cheeks. Um, I forgot what that's called. There's, it's called like a something scar, I believe. Um, but anyway, I, I made it as, as a design and you can get it on, you know, pretty much whatever you want. I think there's like 70 products you can get it on. Uh, if you think it's cool, uh, mm-hmm. you can get it. Anyway, I think that would be really neat. Uh, I had a lot of fun making it. Um, I think next time I'm going to record or do a screen capture of myself as I'm making these things because, uh, they're pretty cool. And uh, <laughs> you have to be careful though. Uh, I made it in a white design and a black design and it's mostly meant to be white on a solid, you know, solid color other than white. Um, so just as you're ordering, make sure you get the, the right color one of whatever it is. Uh, but some of them default to black background with, you know, the white hands and words there. Anyway, uh, let me know what you think of these and, uh, let me know if you're interested and if you get one, uh, I'll get a notification through my email or whatever, but also if you could drop me a comment and let me know that you got one, I'd really appreciate that. Cause that's, uh, it, it'd be nice to hear from somebody uh, who likes this stuff, uh, that they did it as much as I enjoyed, uh, putting the time and effort into making it and, you know, getting it available for people. I have other stuff too, um, you know, not just from this book, but other Star Wars stuff and other general, uh, you know, stuff related to Kusatsu, stuff related to comics, um, as well. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to say. So check that out, please. Uh, you know, do me a favor and check it out. If you want to kind of throw a bone my way, you can, you know, buy a sticker. It's a couple bucks, but you know, it's something it'll help me. Thanks. If you enjoyed this, like, comment, and share to help me grow. Don't forget to subscribe to keep current with each release. Chat with me on Twitter at MJ underscore scribe. Visit mjmunios.com slash podcasts to find the multiple feeds in which I analyze Star Wars, Tokusatsu, comics, and more. Visit mjmunios.com slash support for links to my Redbubble and Coffee pages to help me out.
Thank you so much for your time and attention. Until next time, be well. And remember, in balance lies power to see through dark and walk in light.